Alright, so guys, so tonight I want you guys to think about relationships in middle school and high school. Most of the time they're pretty laughable, uh, most of the time they don't work out. I think the statistics are about 90% of relationships in high school uh, don't end up lasting to marriage. Uh, it's just the reality of how it is. There are some that do, so it's not like it's impossible, uh, but most of them will not. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, a lot of times people mature, and somebody you see five years down the road that you think is just a you know, some annoying, goofiest person right now may not be the person you marry in five years. So people change, uh, especially as, as hormones change and people get involved in different things and life goes on. But also, when you're in middle school and high school, a lot of times the person you choose today typically is not the right person because you're looking for the wrong things. And that's typically why the relationships don't end up lasting. Um, so I want you guys to think about three different types of relationships. And this is how we're going to parallel this child relationship with Christ. The first one is people that date somebody in high school or middle school just because they look pretty or they think they're handsome. Okay, you might know nothing about that person whatsoever. You know, you don't even know what they're involved in. But you look at them in the hallway and you're like, man, that person's pretty attractive. And so you try to date them. Okay? Those relationships are almost undoubtedly going to fail. Uh, typically they last about a month or two and then they're, you know, pretty going on to somebody else. This is because you really don't have any common interests typically, unless you just hit the jackpot. And, um, and you're gonna have those relationships are gonna fail. The second type of relationship is somebody you, you date that you may know a little bit about them. Maybe you like that they're an athlete, or maybe you like that they play the trumpet well, I don't know, you know, whatever, whatever floats you go. Um, but you may like certain certain things about that person, but you don't really know them on a deep level. So maybe you start dating and then you get to know them a little bit better, and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, we're, this is not really the person for me. So those relationships may last a little longer. But well, they're inevitably probably not going to last long term. The relationships that will or have the best chance of lasting, you know, into marriage or and beyond, are those that you know the person really well before you date them. You know, you know the good things about the person, you know the bad things, and you're obviously not going to know a person on earth fully, but you know them pretty well, and so you kind of know what you're getting yourself into before you get yourself into it. And those relationships will typically last because. If you know the good things and the bad things about a person, and you still decide to be with them, then the chances are you're going to persevere through hard times and make it through it. And so um, those are kind of the three type of relationships you see a lot of times in high school, especially as you go into college as well. And in our relationship with Jesus, the same concept can be applied. Some of us may not know Jesus at all, um, so we don't really have a relationship with him. Some of us may have a relationship with Jesus, and it, but the relationship is not really a good one. Maybe we know things about Jesus, maybe we go to church, or we do some events, and so we know some things about the Bible, we know things about Jesus, but we don't really have a good, solid relationship with him. And then there's a, the third relationship we'll talk about in a minute, where you, you know all the ins and outs of what it means to be a Christian for the most part, and you know about what the Bible means, you know what Jesus is calling you to do, and ultimately you know what he did for you. And so you commit your life to following him, and you're in a deeply committed relationship. Um, so, so I want you guys to think about this. Even if you don't have a relationship with Jesus tonight, or you have maybe you have a weak relationship with Jesus, in any relationship, there's three things that can derail even the best relationship. So maybe you've been a Christian your whole life for the most part. Maybe you accepted Christ when you were five, six years old at a VBS, and you've really been committed since then. And that's awesome if you have. But even if you're the strongest Christian on earth, these three things we're going to talk about tonight can derail that relationship and make that relationship suffer and hinder. Um, doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but it means your relationship with God may be severely hindered. And the first one we're going to talk about is 
when you lose your focus in relationships. And so we're going to talk about when you lose your focus. And we're going to look at the passage here in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11. It's a passage of King David, and when you see it's Bathsheba, and how the story kind of uh, plays out here. I want to read you guys out just the very first part here. It's in chapter 11. It says, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to jump a little bit here. So listen here. Let's get to. Sorry about that. I'm in 1 Samuel. I'm reading all that. I know it's not right. Uh, let's see. <laughs> all right. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Okay. So first verse 1 says, it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and the siege of Ammon. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now I want you guys to catch verse 2. It says, Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So, Few things here in this passage. King David is supposed to be at battle with his army. Back in that time, if you're the king of Israel, um, you were supposed to go out and battle with your troops. A lot of times today in America, we don't necessarily follow this model anymore. The commander in chief, which is the president, is probably not going to go out on the battlefield with the troops. But back in the day, we did this in America. So you can think about it. Some of, our, some of our first presidents, they would go out and battle with the troops. So that was the customary measure back then. But instead of David going out and battle, he kind of just stayed back at home, put his feet up, you know, kind of chilled. I was like, yeah, you guys go ahead. Joab got this. I'm just going to hang out here at the, at the king's house. And so that's kind of his first mistake there is that he already lost his focus on what he was supposed to be doing. And he started taking his eyes off of what God was calling him to and started to get kind of lazy. And when you get lazy in life, when you stop doing things that God's calling you to do, it's very easy to quickly fall into sin. Because the devil knows you're kind of getting lazy. You're getting lax, maybe not going to church as much, not reading your Bible as much, maybe your prayer life is suffering. You know, God uh, God knows, but also the devil knows when, when you're slacking. And he attacks you when you're weak. You know, the devil's kind of a coward, and so when you're down and you're weak, the devil's going to kick you even harder. And so the devil's going to put this temptation in front of David. And David being a godly man, he's considered a man of God's own heart. He's actually considered one of the best kings of the Bible. He knows right from wrong, okay? He's not a dumb person. And he's actually a pretty good moral guy up until this point. Um, and so David goes out on the roof of his house. Now that seems kind of odd, but back then, what you have to think about something. If you were the king, you're in the king's house, you know, your house is probably going to be much bigger and higher than the this is a really bad neighborhood here. This is the king of the slums. Um, but, <laughs> Um, <laughs> oh boy. Oh my Ooh, man, alright, yeah. Like a leaning tower of Alright, anyways, um. <laughs> looks like tents. It does. Alright, so if you're David, mm -hmm. <laughs> horrible example, then you like a flat roof. Alright, so if you're David, and you're in the, the Hugo house here, um, you might be walking on your roof, um, and uh, because back then <laughs> they didn't have running walls. <laughs> Um, because they didn't have running water back then, I'd say the bad roof. Um, what is color this in? 
Okay, so the car didn't have running water back then. They would have like troughs or bathtubs on the roof to catch the rainwater. Um, because the, the rain the rain would come down, they would collect these little troughs here, and you would go bathe on the roof. Um, I guess modesty was not a huge deal. Um, and so uh, as David was walking on his roof, choose to. 
And so you'll see here, let me read what David does. So in verse number uh, three, it says, So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, This is not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Um, so I want you guys to think about kind of the next point, how it progressed really quickly there, is that David asked her to, to come in. He wants to find out more about this woman. He finds out that she's Uriah's wife. He's actually really good friends with Uriah. He's kind of just a history here. At least, at least they seem to have a good relationship. He's just pretty much his best soldier in, in battle. But yet, even though he knows all the information, he's already let that fall about being with, his, with Bathsheba, leaving his mind so long, he's pretty much convinced himself that he's going to pursue this even if it's a terrible situation. And so because he's let that fault settle in, it's now turned into a desire that he's going to have to live out, or he chooses to live out. And because of that, he falls into sin, and he sleeps with Bathsheba. And so the second thing here I want you guys to think about is this. The second thing that can destroy any relationship is when you willingly in here, I shouldn't have inquired about her. He should have immediately separated himself from her, especially knowing he was having these kind of thoughts. But instead, he willingly surrounds, her, surrounds himself with her in a private setting. That's a pretty stupid idea. So when you willingly surround yourself with temptation, you're more than likely going to fall into it. And here's an example for you guys in life today. You know, if you're dating somebody uh, and you think they're attractive, which I'm sure you probably do if you're dating them. Um, and so if you're dating that person, um, and, you've been, and you know hormones are high and you guys are both attracted to each other, then if you're going on a date with that person, you know, you probably don't want to be in a room alone where your parents are nowhere to be found and, you know, nobody's really watching you or even, you know, has any kind of control if you, know, if you can't control yourself. Because even though you may have good intentions when you go there, your self-control starts to fade when you put yourself in situations where you're highly, highly tempted. Because even the best Christian can fall short um, when, you're, when you're in a situation where it's really hard to do the right thing. And so if you know that going into it, then go on a date like in the movie theater or go on a date in the park or go somewhere like, go to like an aquarium or go somewhere fun like Butland or something like that where it's in a public setting where you can still have some time to talk and be alone um, in a sense, but you're not fully alone so those temptations are not as high to do some things you, know, you shouldn't do. Uh, in addition to that, also... If a friend invites you to a party, and you know that party's going to have alcohol, we're going to have things in it that you shouldn't participate in, well, the, more you're, the longer you're at that party, if everybody else around you is drinking and doing things they shouldn't do, then there's a good chance you're going to end up falling into that too because temptation's going to get really high. You're not going to want to do something everybody else is not doing. You want to fit into the crowd. You want to be the cool kid, the popular kid, and you're going to make mistakes that night probably that you'll regret for years to come. So if you know those things are going to happen in that party, then don't go to that party. Don't surround yourself in that situation. Go to a party that's not going to have any kind of alcohol and stuff at it. And there are a lot of parties and fun times in high school that don't have that. Um, and so I want you guys to think about that there. Even the strongest Christian can fall if you're not putting on the armor of God daily. I want you guys to also think about this here. I want you guys to really listen to this point. Well, number two. This right here, surrounding yourself with temptation, it's not so much just physically putting yourself with people or you're going to make some kind of bad mistake physically. 
and also in your, in your private life as well. So in your private life, if you're downloading apps you know you shouldn't download, if you're searching things you shouldn't search, you know, if you're watching movies and shows that have things in that you know you really shouldn't be watching, the longer you continue to search those things, look up those things, download those apps, add those people on Snapchat, you shouldn't be adding things like that, the more you're putting yourself in a situation to fail. And the more likely you're going to end up giving into that temptation and go to something you shouldn't go to, talk to somebody you shouldn't go, you shouldn't talk to, or watch something you shouldn't watch. And then the problem is, once Satan plants those seeds within you and, and, and he gets you hooked onto that sin, it can be very hard to overcome that sin if you don't have good people in your life around you, helping you come out of that. And so I want you guys to think about that today. What are you tempted with in your private life and even in your dating life and personal life? Are you putting yourself in situations where you can be successful? Are you looking at things? Are you putting yourself in situations where you're likely going to fail? Because that's a big deal. And the last one here is this. It destroys relationships. Is when you begin to act on your temptation. And this is what happened to David. Again, he's a man for God's own heart. He's supposed to be one of the strongest Christians. And yet, he ends up committing adultery with Bathsheba. And if you read on, I want you guys to listen to what happens after this. What happens afterwards is this. Starting in verse 4. Then David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. And she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house. And the woman conceived... So she sent and told David and said, I am a child. All right, so David finds out uh, she's pregnant, um, and so this is not going to be easy to hide the sin. Um, so now I'm going to have to do something to cover this up. So I want you guys to think about this here. Once you get involved in sin, you have two choices in life, okay? When you get involved in sin, one is to repent, and the other is to hide it. And the second option is going to inevitably lead to a lot more sin. And here's what I mean by that. When you make a mistake, when you, you know, you took your, you took your eyes off God, you surround yourself with temptation, you try to give in to temptation, and you made a mistake, it's not the end of the world. You know, there are consequences, but God will forgive you and God will restore you if you repent and turn to Him. So at this point, if David would have repented and turned to God and said, God, look, I made a mistake. I really messed up here. I'm sorry. I need your forgiveness. I need your help. There still would have been consequences. You know, they would have gotten in trouble for having an affair. You know, Uriah probably would have never been his friend anymore because obviously he had an affair with his wife. And there would have been some consequences, but David could have eventually moved on and still been used in a really powerful way. But instead of David choosing option number one, he was like, you know what? I'm the king. I have all this power and authority. I bet you I can get away with this by pulling some strings, and we can make we can hide this in a way. So David tries to hide this sin. I want you guys to listen to what he does. Listen carefully. It starts in verse six. It says, "Then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite, which is Bathsheba's husband.' And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war prospered." And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now here's kind of what that means. So 
he brings the troops back from battle. David's talking to everybody. And he goes up to Uriah and he tells Uriah, why don't you go home, enjoy your wife, you know, take, take a few nights off. We'll, we'll send you back to battle here in a few days. David's hope was there. He would go home and he would basically sleep with his wife. And so when she came out pregnant in a few weeks, he'd be like, oh, hey, Uriah's here. And he said, all problems would be solved. However, if you guys know the story, Uriah decides not to go home to his wife that night. He said, if my, if my troops are still out to battle, and all the rest of the soldiers aren't coming home from war, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to also not come home until the war is over. I'm going to go back out to battle with them. So David's like, oh, darn, plan did not work. And so then, so then David goes out, what is plan number B, uh, or letter B? And this is plan B. This, is, this really escalates quickly here in the story. This is plan B. Um, so, it starts here in um, verse 14. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by hand of Uriah. And so, this, this is really corrupt because Uriah doesn't know it's in the letter. He's about to give his letter to Joab, which is the commander of the army. Because again, Joab leaves because David decided to stay at home. And then Joab's going to read off what this letter says without telling Uriah. And so, he said, this is what it says. The letter says, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. Um, then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. So what happens here in kind of the rest of the story David's plan is that he's going to kill Uriah uh, in battle. Then he's going to marry Bathsheba. So then when she becomes pregnant or, or, show, or the world finds out that she's pregnant, she starts showing here in a few weeks. He's like, oh, we're married. No worries at all. You know, and so that's kind of his plan B. Um, however, he, he gets he gets encountered with a friend. Uh, anybody know that, who that friend is? First of the end. Nathan. Nathan, yeah. Nathan comes up and he's like, dude, what are you doing? Uh, he's, like, he's like, you have really fallen off the ledge this time. And so um, Nathan really really encourages David that, look, you've got to stop this because you've already gone down a really bad path, and if you don't turn back to God, it's just going to get worse and worse for you. So David realizes at that point that he has really messed up. You know, he messed up, but then because he hit it and didn't repent, he messed up even worse. And so David, David does a point here in 2 Samuel, and you guys can go back and read it, it's pretty long, but David actually repents and turns back to God and says, you know, basically I made a terrible mistake, I continue to sin, I'm sorry God, and please forgive me, I'm going to be your servant again. Now, it doesn't mean that there was no more consequences, because that first child of Bathsheba actually died. It, it doesn't, doesn't make it. And not, not, not only that, when people find out that this happened, David is not and white necessarily, and there's some problems in his family throughout the rest of his life. However, because he repented and turned back to God, he still remained king of Israel uh, for a long time, and he still did some incredible things throughout the rest of his time as a king that he's still considered one of the greatest kings in all of Israel's history. And so the, one of the point is that when you, when you lose your focus, when you give into temptation because you surround yourself with things you shouldn't have or people you shouldn't have, the quicker you turn back to God, the less sin you're going to get involved in, and, and the quicker God's going to use that evil 
for something good in the future. Because even though, like I said, there were still consequences for David's actions, when he turned back to God, God, God forgave him, God restored him, he was still king of Israel, and God still used him to do incredible things in the years to come. And so God promises that in your life too. Even though you've made mistakes, and you've fallen short of the glory of God from time to time, if you're still alive today, there's still hope. And God can take the worst of the worst sinner and use that person, whether it's a man or a female, and do incredible things in the future with that person. And he can use all the mistakes you've made in your life for his good in the future. Again, it doesn't mean that God's proud to give the mistakes, but maybe maybe you were a drug addict in the past or you know alcoholic, and you overcome that, you've given your life to Christ. Sure, there's still consequences for the things you did, but maybe now you can lead others that are going through temptations to not go into those kind of things. And you can help others come out of that. So God can use that really bad situation, that sin that you committed, once you give it to him, and he can use that for his glory by using you to help others in the future. And there's a lot of ways God can do that. So the truth is, just because you sin and your relationship with God tonight may not be where it should be, it doesn't mean you have to stay in that state. If David would have asked for forgiveness immediately and, and repented, God would have forgave him. And God is sitting with open arms today, waiting to forgive you and welcome you back into his kingdom as well. And so I want you guys, I'm going I'm to I'm have a little time here just of a reflection. I have some questions I want you guys to fill out privately. I want you guys to really pray about the questions, think about them for a little bit, and then answer them honestly. The questions I want you guys to ask tonight, ask yourself tonight, is which of the following best describes your relationship with God right now? So not in the past, maybe not, you know, last month, but as you are tonight, how would you describe your relationship with God? Is it no relationship? Is it one where you know some things about Him? Do you talk to every now and then? Are you pretty close to God, maybe not exactly where you want to be? Or do you feel like you're in a really good spot and you're fully committed? Number two is, you know, why do you answer that way? If you're not fully committed, what's holding you back? If you are fully committed, then, then what makes you believe you are? Uh, and I want you guys to think about this. If you aren't in a fully committed relationship with God, then why don't you give your life to Him tonight? Uh, make that decision tonight. I want you guys to think about this. The longer you stay out of a relationship with God, then only you might do some good things in your life. You know, your life still is, is in a sense, kind of purposeless. Because when you die and you get to heaven, if you don't have a relationship with God, nothing else really matters. I mean, if you become the best singer, the best musician, the best sports player, that's all great and good. Maybe you do a lot of good things for people. That's, that's awesome. When you get to heaven, if you never gave your life to God, you never repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus, none of the other stuff really is going to matter. The most important decision you can make in your life is that you give your life to Jesus. You understand that Jesus came down into the perfect life on earth. He died on the cross for your sin, and he rose from the grave. He's alive today, and he, and he says that no matter what you've done, if you repent of your sins and give your life to him, he'll forgive you and cleanse you for all eternity. And then all of a sudden, everything else you do in life has an eternal impact, a heavenly impact. Because then no matter what you're involved in, whether it's sports, whether it's music, whether it's art, whether it's you know, drawing, you can use all of that now to point others back to Christ and do it for his glory, not just for your own glory. And now all of a sudden, everything you do becomes much more meaningful, much more powerful, and God begins to use you in an incredible way. So let me pray for you here, and I want you guys to kind of 
Write down these responses tonight. Do I just want to pray that as we start to think about our own lives and our relationship with you, God, I want us to think about do we really have a true relationship with you? Do we know some things about you? Do we, you know, maybe we've, we've gone to church every now and then. Have we heard about you? But do we, have we really given our lives to you? Have we really come to terms that we are sinners, we've made mistakes, and that we need you to forgive us, and we need you to, to guide us throughout the rest of our lives? God, I pray that someone in the room tonight has not made that decision for the first time. Do they simply repeat a prayer similar to this? It doesn't really matter so much the words but the heart behind it. That, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've made mistakes. But I desire to be in a relationship with you. Please forgive me for the sins I've committed. And I, and I, and I commit today to following you the rest of my life. And God, if someone said that prayer tonight for the first time, I ask that they reach out to somebody so we can just love on them and support them and encourage them in the next way. We're going to also pray tonight that for those that have been Christians for a long time. Maybe they've been a Christian for five to seven years of their life or longer. God, I ask that if they're not in the right relationship with you tonight, maybe they're getting involved in some secret sins or they're involved in some sin, they keep trying to hide it and they're not giving something up. Something's holding them back from being in true relationship with you. I ask that they lay down at your feet today and then they ask for forgiveness. And then they also reach out to someone they trust that can help them uh, overcome that temptation. They can walk with them in love and with, and with, and with, and with encouragement and help them overcome that temptation uh, through your spirit, God, and through your love. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Right, God, I'm going to go ahead and give you these questions. I'll let you guys fill these out. And then we'll play some.